Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg, and I'm a forensic pathologist and a medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I'm going to interview someone who is a medical examiner and talk to them about what that means. How did they become a medical examiner? What does it mean to actually do this job? And on this first episode, I'm basically going to interview myself. So I think the most common question that we all get is, what exactly is it that we do? And the way I like to think of that is I like to imagine myself explaining this job to someone at a, you know, a family holiday party or something. If someone doesn't know what I do, I say that I am a physician who is a subspecialist in the investigation of sudden and suspicious death. And that's what I do. That's what a forensic pathologist is. So let's talk about how I got here. So for me, it's, it's not a straightforward story, and I actually think that's true for a lot of us. But the short version of how you become a medical examiner is you have to, at least in the United States, you have to go to college and then go to medical school and then do an anatomic pathology residency and a forensic pathology fellowship. And after all that training, after about 12 years after high school, that's when you are officially a forensic pathologist. But that's assuming that you go through everything and it, you know, it really sounds easy and it sounds straightforward when you say it that way, but that's just not how it works for most of us. So I'll go into a little bit about my background and hopefully I'll be able to ask the same questions of other people and you can get an idea of what it's been like for, for the rest of us. So I didn't go straight into college. Actually, when I was in high school, I had a really hard time focusing in my classes and I ended up not even officially graduating because I never did very well in high school. I ended up getting a GED and I did that not because I didn't think it was important to graduate, but I I had already gotten acceptance into a college and they said that if, you know, as long as I get my GED or I get my high school diploma, I could start at college. And I found out that I was going to be a few credits short in math of graduating. So I just got a GED so that I could start at college. But after I did that, I thought, you know, I don't even know if I want to go to college. So I ended up, uh, I worked at Whole Foods and I was a cheese specialist for, I don't even remember at this point, I think it was a couple of months or half a year. And eventually I decided, you know, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. So I ended up going to college and I majored in English uh, because I I thought I was going to do some sort of journalism, I think. And I just ended up really, really, really disliking school. And I wasn't able to convince myself to spend any time in my classes. And I mostly wanted to spend time, you know, hanging out with friends and just doing whatever sounded fun. And to that end, I ended up leaving college and I actually moved to Hollywood to be a stand-up comedian and an actor. And so I did that a little bit, actually. I lived in Hollywood and I did some commercials. I did some improv classes. And mostly I did a lot of working at Starbucks and, uh, you know, sort of odd jobs here and there just to be able to live. And then eventually I decided, especially after getting to know, you know, sort of what that life was like, that that just was too sad and I, I, it didn't work for me. And so I decided I was going to go back to school, I thought. And, um, so I called a friend of mine that I had met during that first stint in college and he was a pre-med and at the time he was about, oh gosh, six months into his pre-med career Um, So, you know, six months into college and I called him and I knew that he was going to be a doctor. So I said, Hey man, you know, is being a doctor, is that a good job? Is that cool? And he said, yeah, it's a great job. And I said, do you think I could do it? And he said, yeah, if you try. And because of that, and because of watching the TV show scrubs, 
I decided to go back to college and become a pre-med and plan on going to medical school. But of course, because I had done so poorly in my first time through college and my first, you know, six months there before I dropped out, I had to start kind of at the bottom and I had to make up my GPA. I had to force myself to get, you know, as high grades as I possibly could to counteract those initial low grades I got. And that's what I did. And uh, it was, it was okay. I actually was very lucky because I went back and I just thought, you know, what is the most pre-med type major I could do? So I majored in biology and I was very lucky because one of my classes was a neuroscience class. Um, and the professor ended up, uh, his name is William J. Tyler and it ended up being a great class. And I really enjoyed, uh, his teaching style and he had a research laboratory and I went up there with a friend one time just to see his laboratory. And while I was there, he made a a pretty monumental discovery in his lab at the moment. And he just sort of went around the room and assigned us all jobs, even though I didn't work for him yet. He just assigned me a job. And so I got very lucky and I fell into this sort of neuroscience pathway. Um, So I was really invested in doing well in my classes and I got involved luckily in this research program. Um, And I made a lot of friends, you know, and, and they helped keep me interested in doing college And, uh, yeah, eventually it ended up going, going well. I did a bunch of research in neuroscience and through that research, I was, I was pretty certain that I was going to be either a neurologist or more likely a neurosurgeon. And then it finally came time to do what I consider, honestly, probably the most stressful part of the whole process is the process of applying to medical school because there is no transparency and it's so unpleasant. And, uh, Anybody out there who's who's in that right now, genuinely, I do understand it is a terrible process and it's so stressful, but it, it does get better. Um, you just have to make your way through it. And so I studied for the MCAT and took that. Uh, it's now so long ago that the scores are totally changed and I can't even say, uh, I don't remember what my score is. So if that tells anyone out there who's stressed about their score, it doesn't matter. After you get into medical school, you know, the, it, it's uh, whatever score you need to get in, that's the score. It doesn't really matter after that. So I finished my prerequisites. I took my MCAT and um, at the time and kind of for my whole life, I had a pretty nasty phobia of flying. And so I only applied to one medical school because it was one that I knew if I got an interview, I could drive to. I applied there and I interviewed and they put me on the wait list. And so I waited and I, on the day of my graduation from college, I got the email that I did end up getting into medical school from that wait list. And I was about as excited as I could possibly be. And I walked across the stage, um, got my diploma. And I think right after that is when it hit me that like, my God, I'm about to go to medical school. And that's when I really started getting stressed out because all of a sudden my life is, I know my life is about to change. Now my path has gone from you know, boy, I hope I get into medical school, but who knows what the future holds to now. Once you, once you get in, that's when you sort of become part of the machine. And, and if everything, you know, it used to be prior to getting into medical school, I guess that it felt like if everything goes right, I'm going to get into medical school. But now that I was in, it started feeling like, well, as long as nothing goes wrong, I'm going to be a doctor. And boy, that was a strange feeling. It became very stressful. Um, and I ended up moving. I only, you know, like I said, I only applied to the one school that I could drive to. And that meant that I didn't have to move that far away from medical school, which was kind of nice. Um, but it still was far enough to where I had a whole new group of friends and, 
I went to medical school and I was dead set on becoming either a neurologist or a neurosurgeon until about three weeks in when I met an emergency medicine doctor um, who was just so interesting. And we did these small group classes where he explained the way he thought about all of these patients, what, what he called the undifferentiated patient as a little puzzle. And I just found that so fascinating. It was so cool to think about, you know, these, these clinical scenarios as little puzzles. And I did eventually have to make a deal with him that when he told us stories from his work that he had to, he couldn't just tell us sad stories. He had to tell us once in a while about something that he figured out before the person died or at least was, you know, someone with something that he was able to treat because I think a lot of doctors have a hard time remembering all the good that they do. They just remember the difficult situations. And so we set up a deal and he told us some good stories too. And I ended up uh, absolutely certain that I wanted to do emergency medicine. And that's what I did. I was, I was dead set on doing emergency medicine my entire medical school career uh, other than that first few weeks. And my best friend in med school he also wanted to do emergency medicine and we just sort of went about our lives doing that. And then finally toward the end of medical school, and I know I'm skipping over a lot. It's hard. It's hard to know how much of that because it's four years of my life that felt, I mean, at the time it felt like it lasted forever, but now I look back and, you know, it feels like it was gone in a flash, but uh, yeah, so I, you know, med school was hard. <laughs> I don't really know how much to say about that. But I had no experience. I'll, I'll jump back and just uh, say that at the time I had no experience with autopsy. And I honestly didn't even know forensic pathology was a type of doctor. I wanted to be an emergency medicine doctor. And at the end of medical school, you submit to what's called the, the NRMP, the match. And that's basically where you apply to all of these different residency programs, which for anyone who doesn't know, a residency after medical school. Uh, is a place where you get effectively on-the-job training. So you are a doctor in title, but you just haven't ever done any doctoring. So you go work with other more experienced doctors and you do evaluate patients or, or you know, you do the job of the doctor, but you just have other doctors there to oversee you and make sure that you're getting appropriate training and people are getting the right treatment or, or whatever the case may be. And so <clears throat> I applied to emergency medicine residencies and I ended up, getting the opportunity to go to my absolute dream program in Chicago at Northwestern. And I was, I mean, I can't, I, I have, I have no way to say that was a fantastic program and everyone who I was in residency with, they were incredible. And I still think that emergency medicine is a fantastic field in medicine, but I also found out that it wasn't for me. Just the practical aspects didn't work for me. And so I had yet another time in my life when I had to pivot careers and figure out, well, now, now I know I'm not going to be an emergency medicine doctor after four years of medical school and two years, almost two years of residency. So what do I do now? And for me, I actually ended up uh, taking about a year off and moving to Denmark where I lived with my dad. And, uh, you know, I got to experience that culture and I tried to see if emergency medicine was going to work over in Denmark um, but it didn't. And I ultimately contacted my former program director from my emergency medicine program and asked him, you know, what do you think I should do? I want to come back to the United States. I want to still be a doctor, but I don't, I don't want to do emergency medicine again. It's just not right for me. 
And I did the same thing. I contacted a, um, one of my former attendings went like my supervisor, uh, who was also a friend and mentor, a toxicologist that worked with me in the emergency room. And they both separately independently recommended that I look at forensic pathology. And I think that, you know, they said that that was because based on having known me and worked with me, they thought that it was something that I would enjoy. And it's just not something I had ever considered before. And after doing some time looking into it, reading about what the job was and doing my best to understand what that life would be like, I decided, yeah, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pursue a residency in anatomic pathology, which is the prerequisite to become a forensic pathologist. So you have to do anatomic pathology residency and then forensic pathology fellowship. And so just like my emergency medicine residency, it's, it's a place where you are a doctor but you're surrounded by other more experienced doctors who train you in how to do it. So anatomic pathology residency is, it's basically anytime you're in a hospital and somebody takes a biopsy, uh, you know, you have a lump or something and, and a doctor goes in and takes a biopsy of it. They send it to the pathology team where it will be evaluated both grossly and gross in this context. It just means without a microscope. And so it's evaluated grossly. And then it's also sort of divided into little sections and it's looked at under the microscope. And then we determine, is it cancer? Is it an inflammation? You know, what is it and how should it be treated? And we relay that information to the clinicians. And in addition to that, there's also the component of autopsy. And so um, I guess I, <clears throat> I guess I skipped a, a step here, which is kind of an important step, which was before I started my residency in pathology, I actually was able to contact some local medical examiner's offices and explain my situation and say, I'm planning on going back to residency to become a medical examiner, to become a forensic pathologist, but I'd really like to see what you do. And I'd like to spend some time in the office and understand. And I was lucky enough to, to be allowed a position to come in and, and witness just for a day what that looked like. And so my first autopsy was really a very big shock because it came after having worked in the emergency room for a while. I took about a year off. And then I came back and I walked into a morgue and, uh, you know, the doctors there were very kind and they, you know, walked me through things. But ultimately, it's the first time since medical school that I had really spent any time in the same room as someone who was dead. And it was certainly the first autopsy I'd seen since medical school. And honestly, it was pretty surprising. Even for someone who had already gone through medical school, I had already done the cadaver lab in medical school and I had done years worth of training in emergency medicine and seeing people go from living to dead, it was still a pretty big shock to see an autopsy for the first time. Um, and so basically what, just for anyone who doesn't know, an autopsy consists of an external exam where we look at the outside of the body. We document things like hair color and eye color and the, you know, how, how well someone is taken care of, how much food they've been eating, you know, based on how their body habit is, how, how much fat they have in their body you know, how their teeth look. And we'll also document any abrasions or, or scratches or contusions, which is a, a fancy way of saying bruises. Um, you know, injuries we'll document on the outside. And then we do an incision and we open up the body and we actually look at directly at the organs like the lungs and the heart, liver, kidneys, et cetera. And we take all of it out and it goes on a cutting board and we cut all of the organs into pieces you know, more precisely than that sounds specifically looking for evidence of pathology and, and that kind of thing. So that's what an autopsy is. And 
I hadn't seen one in seven years since my first year of medical school. And so it was kind of a shock. And then we're back to, I went to anatomic pathology residency and I went to Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon. And I had a great time there. I, I really learned a lot. I worked with a lot of excellent people and yeah, I had a great experience. Residency is tough. It's tough in any field. Uh, honestly, I think that overall pathology residency has a reputation for being much more balanced in terms of work-life balance and, and the way people are treated. But medical residency and, and medical training in general it has a reputation for being really difficult. And yeah, it was difficult. There were, there were many, many, many weeks where I would work well over 80 hours a week and, you know, my health suffers and, you know, you see the sun a little less than you'd like, you go out with your friends a little less than you'd like, but I'll say overall, it, it really wasn't that bad. And it's nice to be, if you're going through something like that, and for anyone who's about to go into residency or is about to choose a residency, I really encourage you to go to a residency where you feel like you'll get along with the people that you're working with and that you'll have a support system because it's tough. It's tough for everyone. And having a support system there is important. So did my anatomic pathology residency that took three years. And there's a bunch more we could go into about anatomic versus clinical pathology. And you know, that you know, most pathologists do a four-year residency. I did a three-year residency because that was the minimum necessary to be able to move into forensic pathology, but that's not right for everyone. So most, most pathologists will do four. And I was lucky enough that, you know, I went into pathology specifically to become a forensic pathologist. And I told everyone that, and, um, because I told everyone that I was sort of the go-to autopsy guy and I got to do a lot of autopsies in residency, but that isn't true for everyone. And honestly, out on the other side here, I don't even know if I think that it matters. I don't think that you need to have a lot of autopsy experience before your fellowship, because honestly, I think that, um, you know, that's what fellowship is for. And in the same way that you need to learn how to be a doctor before you learn how to be a pathologist, I think you need to learn how to be a pathologist before you become a forensic pathologist. And so I needed to learn a lot of stuff that was not specifically autopsy related so that I could be better now that I do autopsies. And I feel like I got that at OHSU and, um, that's, that's sort of what my process was like. So I think the next thing to talk about is when I actually went to forensic pathology fellowship. So just a quick recap again. So I finished high school and then college took me, uh, I think it took me about four years. It may have been four and a half. I don't really, never really sat and thought about it that way, but it's about four years. Uh, medical school was four years. And then I did about two years of emergency medicine residency and then switched and I did three years of residency in anatomic pathology. And now it's time to do my forensic pathology fellowship, which is the last step in training to achieve this goal that I had wanted for so long at this point. And forensic pathology fellowship is a one-year fellowship. And I was very lucky to get the chance to do my fellowship at uh, a very prestigious place, at least prestigious, you know, in the context of forensic pathology. And so I did my training at Miami, Miami-Dade Fellowship Um and if you're in the world of forensic pathology, you know, Miami-Dade has a reputation for being a great training program. And there are many, many great training programs. Um, and gosh, I don't even know if calling a program great makes, makes that much sense because it's a lot to do with who you are and what you try to get out of it. But I was really lucky and I was very happy to have the chance to train in Miami because the people I worked with were really, really fantastic. And 
very highly experienced and honestly very well connected. So they were able to set me up with uh, a lot of people who could give me information about what jobs were good and what, what jobs weren't good and advice for my career in general. And so that was, that was really nice. Um, I didn't love going to Miami. If I'm being honest, Miami is not my city. I, if, if anyone's ever seen a picture of me, I'm not, I'm, I, I tell people I have the complexion of like a frozen raspberry. I'm just sort of a white, I'm very white and maybe a little bit red under all the white. And so being in the super hot sun was pretty difficult for me but it was a really cool experience. Um, you know, I, I got on a plane with three boxes, uh, with clothes and, and I shipped my motorcycle to Miami and that's, I just basically started fellowship. I was, uh, the way it's the way fellowship is structured. So again, this is another time when I, I am a doctor and I also have completed my training in anatomic pathology, but I'm not a forensic pathologist yet. So I'm surrounded by people with more experience in forensic pathology so that they can specifically instruct me in how to do that well. And it's a structured curriculum. So there's both didactics, meaning just, you know, lectures with PowerPoints and that kind of thing. And there's also a sort of more hands-on teaching while I do autopsies, they can walk over and directly supervise, explain things, answer questions, quiz me on things that I should know and be looking for that kind of thing. And it was really fun. Um, and, and I have to clarify this now because it's going to come up anytime we talk about this job, but it's tough to talk about medicine and to talk about in particular about forensic pathology and make it clear that while I do recognize that the situations we deal with are sad and they're often, they, they can be very gruesome. We're approaching it as a job. So obviously we don't want any of the things that happened, we don't want that to have happened, but because it happened and we're focused on this career, we're focused on what we do. We want to do it. Well, we do enjoy what we do. Most of us, we really like um, participating in this world and learning about this stuff. And so I don't want anyone to hear this and think that I revel in the fact that anyone has died, but I do find my work enjoyable because it's very mentally stimulating and I feel like I'm doing something important And, uh, you know, so I think of it as a good job. So when I say something is fun, please understand that I don't mean that I'm happy someone died. I'm just happy that I get to do my job and that I feel like I'm doing it well and that I feel, you know, sort of fulfilled and mentally stimulated by the job. So beyond that, um, yeah, the job was, it was really fun. It was fun to learn about things. It was fun to learn how to do my job from these people with so much experience who were really focused on teaching me how to do it and how to do it right Uh, anyone in medical training will tell you it can be very frustrating at times because you'll often get instruction, uh, in how to do something right, but you'll get it in five different ways. And so you don't really know, but the goal is to get you to come up with your own way. And I feel like I did that. And one of the most fun parts of fellowship was that we go to scenes. And what I mean by scene is a death scene. So in particular in fellowship, uh, I went to a lot of homicide scenes And the purpose of going to a scene is to, one, learn what happens at a crime scene. Uh, So you, you attend and you see all the law enforcement and you see the crime scene investigators and you understand what their role is in a death investigation. And then we also understand, we learn how uh, the medical examiner's team operates in that setting. And so we also have death investigators who are sort of the CSI counterpart, whereas CSI works for the police uh, MDI medical death investigator works for the medical examiner. And so 
typically the MDI and, and the medical examiner takes jurisdiction over the body, whereas the law enforcement police, whomever, takes jurisdiction over the scene. And so at a, at a homicide scene in particular, um, you know, we take jurisdiction over the body, they have the scene. And so we work together at that moment and I go evaluate, Hey, you know, this to me looks like this couldn't have been a suicide based on this, this, and this, uh, you know, I'll know more at the autopsy, but I evaluate it. I say, okay, I can see here that this, this thing here, that's a gunshot wound, but these other wounds, those don't really look like gunshot wounds. They're probably stab wounds or they're probably just abrasions or all of this stuff here. That's just abrasions from the glass that came through the windshield, who knows what, but it's a good way to learn the, you know, sort of that first responder, last responder kind of, uh, interaction there at a death scene. And one of the interesting things that happened to me right early in my fellowship was, I believe it was my second time taking call for scenes. I got a phone call from my supervisor that said, Hey, turn around just right on my way home, turn around. Cause we, we just got a call to go out to a scene. So I start turning around and I get back to work and he calls again and says, Hey, it's your lucky day. You're not going to be driving us to the scene. I said, oh, so are you driving us? He said, nope, this scene's so far away, they're going to take us by helicopter. And he hung up and I thought, man, he's got to be messing with me. There's just no way that's true. And next thing I knew, I was on a police helicopter being flown across, uh, you know, Southern Miami-Dade County, about 45 minutes away. I would have been two hours. Well, I guess I should say it was 45 minutes with no traffic. I was 15 minutes in the air and it would have been two hours away with traffic, which is why they flew us. And we, you know, we went out to this scene and it was just so, it felt so surreal getting on a helicopter and being flown to a crime scene and getting out in my scrubs and having, having everyone greet us, you know, hello doctor, the, you know, the homicide is over here. And it was just a very surreal feeling on my second day of fellowship, but you know, that's what I was there for. And I, I thought it was so cool. And I, I have so many stories like that. And I know so many other people have stories like that. And I think that's what I mean when I say our job is cool. It's, it's not that we find the morbid stuff necessarily cool. Although some people have some morbid interest. I think most of us are just looking to be part of an investigation and to be part of the world of medicine and to, to get to experience all these different things. Um, you know, I think it's cool. And then when I think back on the rest of fellowship, I mean, there's so much, you know, that's, I, if it felt like med school went by quick and that was four years and residency went by quick and that was three years, man, fellowship was such a flash because it was just one year. And in that year, I learned basically everything that I now use in my daily life, in my career. And it, it was fantastic. And in addition to that, you know, I went and tried a few different <laughs> restaurants in Miami that I mostly regret. Um, spent some time on the beach getting really, really sunburned. And, uh, yeah, actually I, I, I did end up flying down to Cancun and I had one of the most fun things, uh, happen that could possibly happen, which was I was getting on the flight and I was on my way to Cancun. It was my first and only vacation that I was going to take in fellowship. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go fully into relax mode. I'm not going to think about work. I'm not going to think about being a doctor. And so I threw on some, some mint green shorts and my favorite motorcycle, uh, t-shirt. And I, my, I ordered specifically ordered some mint green 
Crocs with flamingos on it. And I got on the airplane and I thought, now I'm going to be in vacation mode. And we got about 15 minutes outside of Mexico and they called over the airplane speaker. You know, are there any doctors on the plane? There's a medical emergency. And I thought, no, this is, I'll let another doctor handle it. And then they said, are there any nurses? I thought, man, I'll, I'll let the nurses handle it. I'm sure it'll be fine. And then they said, does anyone here know a nurse? Cause we really need help. And I thought, okay, now I'm, I'm ethically obligated to do something. So I let the flight attendant know that it was going to be me. I'll, I'll help out. I'm a doctor. And they said, okay, everyone sit down. There's a doctor on board. He's going to help us out. We just need to, to make sure this person is being checked out. And I had my favorite thing said, which is I stood up and I walked into the hall wearing my mint green shorts and my Crocs. And I heard someone say, that's the doctor. And I don't know if I've ever felt more proud of myself than that moment. But um, yeah, so that was, that was one of my memorable experiences from fellowship too, I suppose. Uh, the person was fine. Don't worry about that. They just had a pressure headache from flying. So other, other than fellowship, just being broadly educational, I learned so much that I don't think I could narrow it down to a single important thing I learned or a, a single, you know, there, there just simply was every day there was a new technique or a new tip or a new way to think about things or a new way to write things down in reports or a new way to interact with law enforcement or, uh, you know, di district attorneys or defense attorneys or whomever, just new tips every day. And so I, I learned a lot. And I do believe that it, I, I really believe that it prepared me to go out and actually practice in the field. And that was, it's really nice. It's, it's very hard and it's very scary to feel like you are finally done with your training and now it's just time to go do the work. You no longer have people there who necessarily have to watch over you and make sure you're doing everything right. And so now it's on you. And I feel like I got that out of my fellowship. Um, you know, it's still a difficult job. There's still a lot of things in the job that I find very frustrating and it can be very like physically challenging and sort of emotionally, mentally challenging. Um, like the job is, I would say pretty physically taxing in some ways. So, uh, the actual process of doing an autopsy can be physically taxing because I mean, some people are very large and they can have very large organs and it can just be difficult to sort of maneuver the body. Uh, in particular, if people are very heavily injured and they have a lot of fractures, then, you know, joints move in ways they're not supposed to move. And bodies are stiff when they first die because of rigor mortis, but eventually the rigor mortis breaks. And then, you know, people just sort of move around. And so it can be physically demanding to, to perform an autopsy. And most places have autopsy assistants who can help, uh, you know, they can either do the evisceration for you or they can help with the evisceration and all the other little practical things that go along with doing the job, but it can be very physically demanding. Um, but I would say more than that, I think that it can be a lot more mentally and emotionally demanding uh, just because there are a lot of cases that are still really difficult and it's not based just on, you know, having more and more experience and then stuff stops being difficult because there is sort of no end. We see everything under the sun. We see new ways for people to die every week. There's something new, something I've never heard of or something I've never seen. And there's often situations where there's no amount of preparation could ever set you up to know the answer to everything. So you have to be ready to think on your feet and just put the pieces together as you go forward. And I think that's part of what makes it so fun right? Because I was so interested in the mystery of the undifferentiated patient. I'm so interested in the puzzle of all these things 
that it is mentally taxing, but it's that's the mentally taxing part that makes it so fun. It's what makes it such a good job. And then there's the emotionally taxing component of it too, which, you know, it's tough to say because once you get into medical training, um, you, you are sort of prepared for it. And so there's this word in medical training called resilience. And that word has this PTSD effect on a lot of people who've gone through residency because I think, unfortunately, the term is being used inappropriately. Right now, people talk about resilience in medical training. And what they mean is they want you to do any amount of work uh, and they want you to allow yourself to be abused and allow yourself to sort of mentally suffer on behalf of your patients and just suck it up and do better. And that's, that's not what resilience means. And that's not what it's for in medical training. What resilience really is, is the ability to get through those things that we have to get through in order to treat our patients. And after four years of medical school and two years working in the emergency room and the critical care unit, and then three additional years working in anatomic pathology, you do develop resilience. You develop the ability to read a patient's history and give them a new diagnosis of cancer or read a patient's history and write a report of how they died and still be able to go back to your job and continue on. And so there are emotional challenges, but if you've gone through all that training, you do develop that true resilience where you're able to sort of um, process those emotions in the moment and process that difficulty in the moment. And so for that, I'm really thankful, but I do sincerely hope that medical training improves in the way that they treat doctors and, and, you know, residents and nurses and everyone else, honestly. But the resilience that I'm talking about is critically important because I just don't know if it would be possible to do this job or really any job in medicine if you didn't have that ability to look at things as a puzzle and I guess in a way separate yourself. But it's not that I don't recognize the humanity in all of my decedents and I didn't recognize it in all of my patients. It's just that I recognize that I was treating the whole situation like work. And, you know, gosh, it's such a difficult situation to talk about because like, for example, I'm able to do my job and I'm able to come home and feel good at the end of the day. I feel like I accomplished something and I don't necessarily take things home with me, but like, I can't watch scary movies because they're too gory. And I really have a hard time with really emotional, sad movies because they make me too sad. And it's because in, in when I'm watching movies, I'm empathizing with, with everyone as a person and just I'm imagining myself in their shoes. But when I'm doing my work, I'm thinking as a doctor and I'm thinking through what I need to do to accomplish what these people need, which in, in the case of my job now, that's answers. And in the emergency room, it may have been, you know, maybe they need medicine or, or they need a diagnosis, whatever it is. But nonetheless, even with the resilience and even with approaching the job as a doctor, sometimes you just kind of can't get away from recognizing the humanity in, in your patients and recognizing the shared similarities of your life and their life. I have had decedents who shared my birthday or, for instance, looked very much like my best friend. And that's hard. Um so I think, I guess if I was going to say what is the still the most emotionally challenging, it's, it's when I forget to maintain my sort of my doctor's hat and I recognize myself in the situation or, or someone that's close to me, 
But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's good to still be able to see that and good because it helps me remember that, you know, even if this person isn't actually my best friend, they were probably someone's best friend. And that helps me remember how important what we do is. And it, it's, it is an important job. And when I talk about getting families answers, that's, you know, that's something that we all talk about, but it does actually mean something to me. Because in my life, I, had, I haven't had a lot of contact with death in my personal life through my friends and my family, but I have had some. And one of the ones that means the most to me and was the most difficult to deal with was when I was growing up, I, I never had any brothers, but I did have two cousins who I was very close with. Uh, their names are Sorna Casper. And while I was living in Los Angeles um, doing stand-up comedy and doing, I actually was the voice of a, a medical education company. I did some narration for a company called Sketchy. While I was doing that, one day I got a phone call from my dad in Denmark and he said, I hope you're sitting down, which is not a great thing to hear because it's usually doesn't come with good news. But he said, I hope you're sitting down. Soren died today. Uh, we don't know why, but he was just found dead in the bathroom. And as I grew up, Soren was my older brother. This is someone who I was very, very close to. And I didn't know how to process that. Even after having been a doctor, even after having worked in the emergency room, even after talking to families and telling them that their loved ones had died, even after having had to do terminal extubations in the intensive care unit and call time of death and fill out death certificates, none of that really prepared me for the way that that personal hit would feel for me. And it was especially difficult because we didn't know why he was 42 or 43. Um, he was young and he died and there was no warning. And right away, you know, we had a lot of questions. We wondered, did, did he kill himself? Did he take drugs? Did he overdose? What, what happened? Is there anything we could do? Is there anything we should have done? Should we have noticed? Did he suffer? We had so many questions and we just didn't know. And it wasn't until we got the results of the autopsy that we found out Soren had what's known as a berry aneurysm, which is a type of dilation of the blood vessels in the, in the brain. And once that aneurysm gets big enough or in certain circumstances, if it, you know, certain changes in pressure or something, it can burst. And when that happens, it does result pretty rapidly in death. Um, for most people, but it's possible to survive it. Just not, not usually. I know personally now how much it meant to me to, to find out, to get a real answer, to know definitely what happened. And, you know, I'll never know if, if, if he, you know, what his last thoughts were. There, there are questions that I know we just can't know the answer to, but knowing what happened meant so much to me and it still does. And I try to remember that when I'm doing this for patients too. And so I know that these answers are, it's not just lip service to the profession. It does matter. It matters a lot and it mattered a lot to me. And so it's a, it, <laughs> sorry, that was a little heavy, I suppose, but it does mean a lot to me. And I think that it's a, it's an odd job. I recognize that. I recognize that when I was becoming a medical examiner, I had to do a lot of explaining what this job was going to be to my family, to my friends. And I have, 
I have the same experience that a lot of medical examiners have, which is that most everyone thinks what we do is really cool and it's really interesting on a surface level. But when we start to really talk about the specifics, that's when people start realizing like, this is a pretty important thing and it can be pretty, we see a side of society and we see a side of people's personal lives that a lot of people don't ever think about. And um, so I think it affected my family and friends a little bit, just knowing that this is what I do. And where, when I worked in the emergency room, everyone felt like they should talk to me about, you know, they want to hear funny stories from the emergency room. And then they want to call me and ask, you know, I have a rash or I, I have this cough. What do you think I should do? But I think now as a forensic pathologist, I think people feel a little less comfortable asking me questions about themselves, um, about their health. And I, I think honestly, that's probably fair. I don't really practice medicine on living people anymore. Uh, but they do often ask me questions about death. And that is such a weird experience because that's not really what my training was in, right? Like I trained how to be a doctor and then I trained in all these pathologies, but then someone asks me, what do you think about death? And that's a, <laughs> that's a great question, but I don't know if my exposure to death on a daily basis has necessarily given me any particular expertise on death. I think it has given me some insight as to, you know, sort of realizing that everybody is going to die, including me. And it's helped me sort of make that fact more real for myself. And in some ways, I guess that's affected the way I live my life. But in a lot of ways, it hasn't, right? Like, I still have a motorcycle. And I mean, any doctor can tell you that that's probably not the best choice. But I also recognize that sometimes people die even if they make all the right choices. And so it, it does affect the way I think. Um, I think if anything, it just has taught me to appreciate things more in the moment and to try to forgive myself for mistakes as early as I can, because, you know, I don't know how long I'm, I'm going to have. And so in that way, I guess it's, it's made me a little bit more familiar with death. And I, I probably think about death more than most. But I don't know if it's really changed that much about the way I live my life necessarily, just maybe about the way I think about the way I live my life. And it has really, really taught me the importance of just treating death like part of life. And so to that extent, I, even as a young person, I have made it very clear what I want to happen if I'm ever in a position where I either die or I don't have the ability to make medical decisions for myself. And so I just basically wrote it out in an email. Here's what I want to happen. Here's how I, get, I want you guys to think about it. And I sent that email to my best friends and my parents and my sister. Um, and that way, if it ever comes up, they know my wishes. And I don't know if that's a legally binding document, but I can tell you from personal experience, both in the intensive care unit, as well as being a forensic pathologist, that a lot of times all people need is some guidance because people are usually surprised. You know, sometimes death comes on slowly. Sometimes you get a lot of warning, but even when you do, it almost never feels like enough. And so giving them some guidance means a lot. And I think everyone should do that. So that's what I did. I wrote an email. Um, and so I did prepare a little bit for death and maybe that's not typical for someone my age, but I do think it would be a good idea. There's really no harm in it. Um, and beyond that, I don't think there's much that I could say that has any particular weight just because of what I do for work. Uh, one thing people ask me a lot is how I feel about what happens after death. 
And that I think is a great example of a question that I just don't have any special expertise in, right? I, I am there after death with people's bodies, but I've never been a, a particular, like a, a person of a particular faith, but I know that a lot of my fellow forensic pathologists are, and I know that a lot of the doctors and the people I went to medical school with were, and I, you know, I think that everyone is just doing the best they can there. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that my exposure to death has really given me any special expertise, but it is a question that I get asked a lot and it's just not part of the training, I suppose. So I think I'm, I'm sort of getting to the point now where I, I've given you my story and I hope that it sets a reasonable baseline for conversations that we can have with other medical examiners in the future. Um, there were two questions that I was planning on asking everyone else. And so I feel like it's fair for me to answer them myself. And so one is if I wasn't a medical examiner, what would I want to do both in and outside of medicine? And gosh, that's tough. I think inside of medicine, like as a doctor, I think forensic pathology is awesome. I had no intention of doing any other type of pathology, but when I was in my residency, I thought neuropathology and the study of uh, the tumors and other pathologies of the brain was so interesting and so cool. And I really could see myself going back and doing that. Um, but if it was even outside of pathology, I love looking at um, images taken, you know, radiologic images. So if I was a radiologist, I think I would really enjoy that. I worked in the emergency room and I got some amazing stories. And I think that one of my favorite fields in medicine is emergency medicine. And I think that in theory, that is maybe you know, what I would say is like one of the coolest fields, but I think in practice, it just isn't for me. And then outside of medicine, um, I do find film and television really interesting. And I would love to be part of creating a, you know, create a TV show and work with these creative people. I, I've always been a big defender of TV because, you know, people, we, we gather, 50 or a hundred of the most creative people we can find that have dedicated their lives to making something awesome and making something artistic and beautiful. And we put them all together and they create this awesome piece of entertainment for us. And yeah, I mean, I know that there are some terrible television shows, but there's terrible books and there are terrible paintings, but that doesn't take away from the really good ones. And so I do think that, that doing something in TV uh, would be really fun. I would really like doing that. Uh, or at least, you know, I would in theory, I don't know if being, if we're, I'm sure working in television is probably, um, not as glamorous as I'm imagining it, but it sounds fun. And then the last question that I plan on asking people, uh, on this podcast, because I know that we're going to do a lot of talking about really serious stuff is I just want to remind everyone that we are, even though we are forensic pathologists and we do this really serious job and we deal with a lot of really serious things that we're also normal people. And, you know, we have families and we have friends and we have fun. And so I wanted to talk about a time in your life when, um, you laugh really hard. I don't really care. I'm not going to ask people to, you know, tell me a joke or anything. I just want to hear about something that they really enjoyed. And, uh, when I read that question just now on my prep sheet, it made me think of when I was in third year of medical school, living with my best friend, we, um, third year of medical school is when you do your rotations and it's often the most challenging and most time intensive year of medical school. 
And in particular, the general surgery rotation is sort of classically a very, very time intensive, difficult rotation. And my, my best friend and I had it at different times. And when he was on his general surgery rotation, he was waking up at four in the morning or three 30 in the morning and getting home at 10 PM. And, and the days can be really, really difficult. And sometimes it's six, sometimes it's seven days a week for months. And I do remember one time he had a particularly tough day. The next day he was aware of it and he didn't end up getting home until like 11. I knew that he was going to have to wake up at three 30 in the morning to go have his really difficult day. And, um, <laughs> and we just had this habit of playing practical jokes on each other. And I happened to have the time off. And so I woke up uh, or I didn't wake up. Actually, I stayed awake all night and I heard his alarm go, go off. And as soon as I heard his alarm go off, I went and stood right outside of his bedroom. And as soon as he walked out of his bedroom, I shot him with a Nerf gun and to see him go from fully asleep to as angry as you could possibly be and see me squeal away and say, you can't be mad. It was just a Nerf gun. You know, it made me laugh and it, you know, he got me back tenfold, but it's just little practical jokes that we would play on each other. And it made me laugh a lot. So that's what I thought of. You know, I don't know if that's funny to anyone else, but it certainly was funny to us at the time. And yeah, so I guess that's sort of my process of what it's been like for me becoming a medical examiner. I hope that this was fun. I hope it was entertaining. I hope you got something out of it. And I hope that I can get some other medical examiners on here to talk about this awesome job that we do. And if you want to learn more about what I do and what we do in this field, um, I say go to Reddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. And if you don't want to be a forensic pathologist, you can just go to r slash forensics and see what other jobs exist in the forensic world. If you want to learn more about our national association, go to thename.org. That's National Association of Medical Examiners. So thename.org. And there's lots of information about what we do. It's, it is more geared towards people who are already medical examiners, but there's a lot of education on there. There's a lot of outreach. And if you're looking for a medical examiner that is going to do, you know, uh, hire someone as a private case or something, you can check it out there or reach out to us. I'm at Dr. Hanberg on Instagram. I'm uh, my YouTube channel is at Dr. Hanberg and my TikTok, while it still exists, is uh, at Forensic MD. And so, yeah, thanks and see you for the next Becoming a Medical Examiner. Yeah.